everybody. Welcome back to Rishapata Star. This is Frodo the Lawyer once again, and we are now still talking about the movie Fantasia, the movie Fantasia, as uh, as some might say. Um, now, it is obviously a very music movie. It is very big on classical music, which, although Amanda and I are uh, Disney music experts, as we obviously are, it's, it's apparent from listening to all the episodes we've recorded, we are not the most adept when it comes to classical music. I mean, we know what Beethoven is, we know what a Bach is, uh, we've heard of these things, but we need someone with a little more uh, meaty, substantive uh, background on this music. So, for that reason, we've brought back in our old friend, Daniel Batchelder. Um, so, Daniel, thank you for coming back once again to give us your insight on Fantasia. Hello, Frodo the Lawyer. Yes. Um, it's good to have you back. If our fans remember, we had you in to talk about Snow White, and we talked a little bit about how it was a blending of certain styles of music, the operetta style, the more contemporary style, and uh, since then we've talked about Pinocchio, and now we're on to Fantasia. So, uh a whole bunch has happened in our in all of our lives since uh, since we last met. What has happened in your life since we last met? Oh gosh, uh, well, not to ruin the illusion of the internet radio. At the time of recording this, I am still working on my PhD, but hopefully by the time this airs, I will have received my PhD. Mm. So, so you're not really a doctor yet. You're not this expert. I've been putting you off on as to our i'm sorry listeners i'm sorry i just yeah you. Uh, you know i'm really just a huge fraud um but you know i have to ask you know i you know i'm a fraud in that i tell people i'm a disney music expert uh but i don't really understand why you would have a disney music expert talk about fantasia uh where there is clearly no music um like why am i here Ah, oh, very, very witty. I see you've uh, you've made a joke, Mister Dan. Uh, good, good one. I have good, Thank good you. joke. Thank you for noticing. Um, yes. Now you did point out, uh, kind of in a joking way, that you know you're a Disney music expert, and this movie, it's not Disney music. It's you know it's music that's sort of become Disney. You know what I mean? You you understand what I'm saying with that? Yeah, Disneyfied. I wonder what the yeah. uh, adjectival form of Disney is. Disneyed. Right. Um, I mean, for instance, the the one that everyone thinks about when you think about Fantasia, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, that is a real, uh, it's a real piece of music. It's based on a real poem that was not something that was Disney, but now when you think of The Sorcerer's Apprentice and you think of that music, you think of Disney, and that's because of Fantasia. So uh, you were kind of making a joke about that, but it is true that uh, that this is this is more than just Disney music. This is something else. Yeah, and it, without joking, I would argue, does this soundtrack even count as Disney music since none of it was mm. composed for the movie right. or for any movie at any time, mm -hmm. you know? Right, yeah, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting thing, and that's what makes Fantasia so unique and different than the rest of the Disney canon, and also the rest of movies uh, in the world. Yeah. Uh, so, before we go too far into Fantasia, though, I do want to go back and talk about what led us here. When we last talked to you, we were in the middle of Snow White. Between Fantasia and Snow White, we had Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. And I think that before we get into Fantasia, I do want to pick your brain a little bit about your thoughts on Pinocchio, how it differed from Snow White, and then kind of historically what was going on in Disney that, that in the time between Snow White and Fantasia uh, that led us to where we are now. So, Pinocchio. Yeah. Uh, the, well, the first song of Pinocchio is When You Wish Upon a Star. Um, obviously, this is a, a big song. It's a big deal. Uh Kind of, what are your initial thoughts on Pinocchio and maybe When You Wish Upon a Star? Well, yeah, I think to back up a little bit, um, you know, you, you, you got through Snow White. Uh, I think what is important to remember is that when it was released, Snow White was the highest grossing film in history, like of all time. Wow. Um, 
so this you know this was in 1937 into 1938 <clears throat> um but so this is before gone with the wind exactly so it you know yeah. the records it broke get quickly overshadowed in 1939 by gone with the wind which you know by an order of magnitude or, or so mm. much more money and so many more audiences um yeah. but yes yeah, snow white was an enormous success for the studio. Um, and, the, you know, this was in the era of the major Hollywood studios. You know, it's the MGM and the RKO. And Disney was really never considered a major studio in that way. It was a, a small studio that specialized in, oh, this this sort of funny thing of animation. And even though they did it really well, it wasn't nearly the same budgets or the same expectations. Um, and so... Snow White blew all of these expectations out of the water and earned Disney a whole ton of money, which sort of emboldened them to uh, continue making feature films. It sh they showed that, like, yes, this is a viable uh, thing to do with our time and with our money. Mm -hmm. So they actually moved to, like, a physically different studio after Snow White. Uh, they moved into uh, Burbank, uh, California. Oh. Mm -hmm. Wowzers. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, they earned so much they could literally build a building for themselves. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, they had to hire so many people for Snow White. And they were still making shorts throughout this whole time. So they had, had over a thousand people in their studio, which was just completely unheard of for animation. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think the amazing thing when you talk about uh, Pinocchio and also Fantasia is that they were released in the same year. I mean, literally within mm. months of each other. Yeah. And of course, this studio was working on multiple films all at once. And you would spend, if you're an animator, you'd spend some time drawing Snow White. And then you'd spend some time drawing, you know, the cat from Pinocchio. And then you'd go work on the dance. No, wait, 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 wait. I have to stop you. Now, this is, a, this is a big point of contention. Which cat are you talking about in Pinocchio? Because there's... There's multiple cats. There's Figaro, and then there's also Gideon, who are both cats, but of, of different sorts. So which cat were you thinking of? Course. of? This is you know, I can I say that I was thinking about both simultaneously. Um, okay, that's fair. I just, I wanted to get a good idea of what your definition of cat is. Well, <laughs> and your definition of cat is is both a cat and a person that has a cat face. So both yeah. of those things. You know, and the the difference between. Uh, Figaro and Gideon, I think, speaks to the kind of weird experimentation with animation that Disney was doing in Pinocchio. Like, it was really leaning into how can we, like, explore what it means to be an animated character. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. sure you've talked about this before. You know, Figaro is the, the lit, you know, it's mostly like a cat, but it's also kind of hyper-intelligent. Yeah. And, like, yeah. can understand English, apparently, but doesn't wear clothes and doesn't walk upright like Gideon or have opposable thumbs like Gideon. Right. Yeah. Doesn't swing hammers at people. Yeah. We definitely talked about that. Um, but, yeah, going back to what you were in, you were saying how these movies were worked on at the same time. So was it true that uh, – was it always intended that Pinocchio would come out before Fantasia? Um or, or I guess, what was the origin of those two ideas? Yeah, um, I believe Pinocchio was always intended to come before Fantasia. Although, actually, what was originally supposed to be the second feature, like the one to come after Snow White, was Bambi. Um, they had mm -hmm. secured yeah. the rights to this uh, novel that Bambi is based on while working on Snow White. Um, and they were it was going to be their next film, but then the studio discovered that well, you know, to do this novel justice, we can't make it kind of a funny cartoon and we can't sort of rely on these old tricks. And when they realized that, they realized, wow, we really, really need to learn how to make animals that look super realistic. Um, so Bambi wound up taking much longer than they initially planned. Um, and it wound up being, as you know, the last film to come out before yeah. the end of this uh, golden age uh, and, it, and it wound up being what uh, nearly drove them to bankruptcy and is essentially why the golden age ends with Bambi so Bambi's uh, mom isn't the only thing to die in, uh, in Bambi spoiler alert 
Oh, rough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know, like 70-year-old spoilers. Yeah. You know, what's the statute of limitations on these? Um, yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, it, it varies based on uh, the age of, of the person. You know, if, if you're finding this, like, a little five-year-old kid, like, I mean, like, our, I'm sure there are millions of five-year-old children listening to this podcast. They may not have reached Bambi yet. You know, they have a lot of options. But, you know, if you're, mm-hmm. if you're 20 years old, you know, you, you have to have seen Bambi by now. Um, yeah, I mean, engage with the culture for once. And I, I'm actually saying this as someone who, uh, and I'll talk about this more when we get to Bambi in a few months, I guess, but uh, I've actually never seen the entire movie of Bambi. I just, uh, we were watching it uh, one day in my indoor recess of my uh, elementary school, and uh, recess ended because, you know, it was only like 30 minutes because we were like children, and then after that I never I never finished watching the movie, so cliffhanger for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, the the ending is pretty exciting. Yeah. You're in for a treat, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see it. But, um, yeah, so they, they didn't get to Bambi until a little bit later. Instead, they, they turned to Pinocchio. And Pinocchio, from the way I've seen it described and some of the, the book I've read and some of the other material, is that it was a true epic, um, you know, sort of comparing it to, like, the Odyssey or, or something of that nature. Um, I guess what – do you know what made Disney want to – take on such a, a large-scale story, um, coming off especially Snow White, which is, you know, pretty much takes place in, like, three rooms uh, and in a forest. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Um, so, yeah, what drew them to, to Pinocchio? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a complicated question. Mm-hmm. Um, there, I think a lot of it was ambition. You know, mm-hmm. look what we were able to do with Snow White. Now let's see if we can stretch ourselves even farther. I think... What especially attracted Walt Disney to Pinocchio was that it had this act of bringing an inanimate inanimate object uh, to life as this sort of central Mm -hmm. uh, part of the story. And as an animator, uh, that that must have been really appealing to him, especially, you know, the opportunity to sort of conflate the technology and reality of animation with magic and fantasy. Um, and actually, uh, something that I think is really interesting, um, in the original story of Pinocchio, you know, it was this children's book that was published in Italy that was first published as, like, you know, serialized chapters and mm-hmm. then was all collected. Yeah. Um, in the original story, it doesn't start out like in the Disney version where, oh, there is this woodcarver who makes a puppet and then magic brings it to life. No, it, it starts with uh, a woodcarver chopping down a tree in the forest and the tree starts speaking to him. The wood is already alive. Mm -hmm. And then he brings it to Geppetto and Geppetto carves it into the shape of a puppet. Gotcha. But there's no like act of magic that brings Mm -hmm. it to life. So that is a Disney invention. That is, look, this is a movie, an animated movie about the act of animation. Yeah, that's, that's actually a good point. There's two meanings of the word of animation. I mean, it, it all derives from the same you know, meaning, the root of the word, but we've come to take animation to mean, like, pictures, um, whereas in reality it's, you know, bringing something, uh, it's animating it, you know, bringing it to life, making it uh, uh, expressive or in, in some way. You can do that via music, you can do that via via images, um, you can do it via yeah life, yeah. So, Well, and this sort of, you know, connection between, you know, the act of bringing to life and the medium of animation, Mm -hmm. I think that gives an interesting spin on the sort of uh, Figaro-Gideon discrepancy. Like, why would we have two cats who are so different in the same movie operating (laughs) in the same universe Uh, and that is not something disney would have done before Uh, Mm. they don't really do that in their shorts yeah um you know characters tend to be fairly stable in you know how anthropomorphic they are how sort of characterized they are um but yeah, in Pinocchio, the studio really leans into, like I said, it leans into like how can we experiment yeah. with this, um, with this medium? Mm-hmm. As a musical, I I feel some of that same experimentation. Uh, I don't know if you noted this in your Pinocchio episodes, but it's that movie stops being a musical 
just under halfway yeah. through. Yeah. Um, and that is really weird. Yeah, and, and then it relies a lot on you know the score and things like that, but there's no no songs. Yeah, we definitely noticed that. Uh, it's uh, I mean, Snow White, although it wasn't quite as stark. Um, a lot of the songs are done most of the way through, and then you get maybe silly song in the second half. But beyond that, there's there's not much musical. Um, so when I, I you do... get someday my prince will come. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. The, you know, it's it's not equally distributed, but it's fairly evenly distributed, right? Right. From beginning to end. Um, and other than these two tiny little like reprises in Pinocchio, yeah. You get you get to I've got no strings and then it just completely ceases generating new material. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's interesting that got no strings is this moment where we're sort of getting the flagrant uh, inanimacy of these uh, like ethnically marked marionettes yeah. sort of flopping around the stage. And so for it, you know if we see it as a film about what does it mean to be a character in an animated film. We can also ask, what does it mean to be a character who sings in an animated film? Yeah, yeah. Amanda and I talked about the the ethnic orientation of the of the wooden puppets. Uh, specifically, we we kind of were grappling with a little bit of, uh, you know, is this uh, racism? But is it okay because it's against European cultures? Um, I did read that they were thinking of including Jap or Chinese and African puppets. So. It's probably a good thing they didn't do that, but... I, I can say um, Disney did get pretty far with the African sequence, mm-hmm. and it is rough. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much they animated, but I've seen a lot of the sketches for the score and the lyrics, mm-hmm. and it's about as bad as you might imagine it to be Yeah. Um, for, you know, an American studio working in the late... 30s mm-hmm. um but yeah you know th- this was just a thing that happened in hollywood and broadway musicals you would just have exotic markers yeah, just right. to make it kind of fun and interesting yeah we try to to draw a distinction that this is maybe it is stereotyping but it was stereotyping that was meant to you know give it yeah like a fun exciting feel it, it wasn't meant to disparage these peoples or say that they are somehow inferior. I mean, if they'd included the African sequence, I think that we'd maybe change our view on it, but um, you wouldn't go into this and, and come out of it thinking, uh, you know, those Russians are a bunch of stupid people, but but you come out thinking, oh, Russians do this funny dance that they do. Isn't that cool that Russians do a funny dance? Right. Um, well, especially because... I don't think we're meant to see them as real Russian characters because it's these like totally amateur puppets like flopping yeah. around the yeah. stage. Um, I do think it's interesting that they go for a Dutch variation rather than a German variation, mm-hmm. which seems like a pretty fine distinction to draw. Um, but given that the most of the movie of Pinocchio takes place in this weird sort of fairy tale amalgam of like Italy and Germany sort of Alpine region. Um, It helps sort of distance those puppets from, you know, the Geppettos and Strombolis. And I think it also helps set Pinocchio himself into relief as sort of unmarked. Mm -hmm. Um, And you could say that makes him more, German or Italian, but I really think it makes him more American. Yeah, is the music he's, he is very American. Yeah, yeah. We talked about how um, specifically with uh, Jiminy Cricket, how he's a very American character with all of his Americanisms and his, you know, hey, what you doing? Uh, put her there. Put her mm-hmm. there. And that uh, those aren't things he actually said, but you know that kind of uh, yeah <laughs> talk. Um, well, let's go. Yeah, into, he's an anachronism. Yeah. Let's since you mentioned uh, how it's American style of music that Pinocchio is singing. Let's go through the music itself then, and and uh, we'll 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 get back to racism later. But um, uh, yeah, let's go through Can't some of the wait. music of Pinocchio. So specifically, it starts off with "When You Wish Upon a Star," and I do think one thing you said earlier about how in the book um, there was no wish. So this is something that Disney has now chosen to insert a wishing sequence and to have a wishing song obviously coming off of Snow White, where we had 
it, I'm wishing, and then potentially another wishing song with Someday My Prince Will Come, we now have another one. So that's something that Amanda and I talked about. We we talked about how this is the more uh, iconic wishing song. This is something that has, has lasted as a Disney, uh, as a presence in Disney to this day. So what did... Uh, Lee Harleen, is that is that how it's pronounced? Yes, Lee Harleen. Uh, yes. Strangely spelled H-A-R-L-I-N-E, so you'd think it was yeah. Harline, but yeah. it's Harleen. Yes. I don't know why. Apology, yeah, apologies for saying that wrong earlier in the podcast. It is Lee Harleen. Uh, so what was Lee Harleen doing with that song? Um, and if you want, you can go into then the larger context of the song as well. So, you know, musically we can draw distinctions between Snow White and Pinocchio if for no other reason than it was two different composers. I mean, really more than two, but two different main composers. Mm. Um, And yeah, you know, Frank Churchill, who wrote Snow White, um, both of these guys were studio composers for Disney. They had been hired to write uh, the music for the studio shorts, like the Mickeys and the Silly Symphonies. Uh, But Churchill was coming from a sort of silent film scoring background. He was used to, you know, being a theater organist. And when a silent Mm. film played, he would improvise uh, or, you know, sometimes there would be like suggested cuts to play, but a lot of it was improvised. And so he brought, I'd say, a more sort of populist uh, tone to the Disney studio sound. Whereas Harleen had a degree in composition, so he's coming a little bit more from uh, mm-hmm. sort of composerly, I don't want to say cerebral because that makes it sound like I'm dissing Churchill, but he mm-hmm. was a lot more, I would say, intricate with his compositions and did a lot more sort of sort of fancy, yeah. classical in big quotes tricks. Mm-hmm. Where um, in the uh, in the soundtrack for Pinocchio do you see the influence of this classical music style that you you said with Lee Harleen? Yeah, well, um, Frodo, does the word leitmotif mean anything to you? Yeah, this is actually something we we briefly mentioned it in the in the podcast. We compared it to, for instance, like Star Wars has is a it, it it's a like short themes for each character. That's my understanding. Yeah, and it's not, it doesn't have to be associated with the character. It can be associated with an important idea. Um, Mm -hmm. But the point is that these uh, return at parts where they make dramatic sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, for, you know, for example, in Star Wars, there's the, um, the Jedi theme. And every time something important happens that is related to the Jedi's, you right. hear this theme. Um, and in Pinocchio, you know, we get a theme for the cricket, and we get a, but we also get a theme for wishing, which is the mm-hmm. melody of when you wish upon a star. Which you know, by introducing that song in the beginning, we associate that song with the idea of wishing. But then, you know, when Geppetto is making his wish, we hear that melody in the background. And when Mm. the Blue Fairy grants the wish, we hear it again. Mm -hmm. Um, So this this is the basic principle behind uh, leitmotifs, is that they're sort of reused in dramatically or narratively appropriate ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to be careful about you know, making this false dichotomy about, oh, classical is better or leitmotifs equals classical equals, you know, more intelligent. I'm not going to go there. But I will. Frank Churchill is dumb. (laughs) No, I'm kidding. Uh... But it's evidence of this more composerly sound. Um, And also, I hear a lot of influence of the composer uh, Richard Strauss, in the score to Pinocchio, um, hmm. the like, I mean, I don't know how explicit you want me to get here. The the cricket hopping theme sounds a lot like the theme from a famous Strauss tone poem, Till Eulenspiegel. Um, and when the blue fairy appears, there's a uh, a cue in the. It's an instrument called the celeste. Um, if you're familiar with 
the dance of the sugar mm-hmm. plum fairy that's the sort of yeah. instrument that sounds like little bells um mm-hmm. and it they when the blue fairy appears yeah that's in fantasia so if you guys haven't a... listened to, to that you're in the wrong episode so yes oh, we yeah. all know dance yeah. of the sugar plum fairy mm-hmm. um and so when the blue fairy appears, the Celeste plays this series of chords, and I haven't found anything that says it, but it is a direct quotation from a Strauss opera, like another series of chords played by the Celeste. Yeah. And the reason I didn't want to draw this false distinction is because it makes it seem like, oh, by paying homage to these more sort of big scare quotes, art, music, um practices then oh he must have been or lee harley must have been completely negating any popular music practices and that's totally false like all of the songs in pinocchio um were meant to be consumed individually as songs outside of the film as popular songs nearly all of them take the what was then the like standard pop music form uh, it's called either 32 bar form or AABA mm-hmm. form, mm-hmm. not to be confused with ABBA. Uh, no, that's ABBA. Yes. Um, yes, which so, is a, you know, a very strange song form. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but this, you know, uh, did I forget if I talked about Tin Pan Alley in this? In um, I don't episode. know if you did, but uh, but uh, you can briefly. I mean. Uh, my understanding of it is that this was the uh, the sort of music industry of its day was an area in New York where people were writing these sort of songs. Yeah, you know, Tin Pan Alley sort of refers to three related things. It's specifically this one block in New York where there were a lot of sheet music publishing houses. Uh, but more broadly, it refers to just the American popular music industry. Um, as well as like, the style of music that was associated with it. Um, mm-hmm. And this was a time, I think it's important to remember, where popular music and songs written for musicals were, there was a ton of overlap between them. You know, uh, film musicals and stage musicals were how a lot of popular songs were introduced. Uh, think of something like, I've Got Rhythm, uh, by the Gershwin mm-hmm. brothers, written for a musical, but very much became a hit song on its own, not only through selling recordings and being played on the radio, but also through selling sheet music. And people would purchase sheet music to take home with them. And this was kind of the primary way that people consumed popular music um, at this time, or at least one of the most popular ways. So I guess people people were more likely to to own a piano than a, a phonograph machine or a yeah, record player. So as the decade gets later in, the phonograph and the record player sort of replaces the piano. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, people were more likely to know how to read music. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I often could own a piano or even just some, you know, like a small organ. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in their living room or something like that. Yeah. Um, or even just like just sing by themselves, like for fun. But yeah, so even though, you know, Harleen's score for Pinocchio sort of goes in these sort of musical scholarly directions, the songs are still very much part of this Tin Pan Alley machine where musicals and Hollywood and Broadway and Tin Pan Alley were all sort of intermingling. Um, so nearly mm. all of the songs take this standard Tin Pan Alley format of the 32-bar form of the AAPA form. Uh, when You Wish Upon a Star totally does. Um, oh, and I should say by AAPA, that means uh, if we take a, a part of a melody and give it a label starting with the letter A... So typically, you'll have the A section, and then the A section will repeat with different lyrics, and then we'll get to a new kind of melody, which mm. we call the B section, to differentiate right. it. Uh, that's also called the bridge. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, we would get back to the A section, again, probably with new lyrics. Yeah, and, and um, d- just to kind of uh, 
maybe further explain that it's akin to the idea of a verse versus a chorus. Um, that's not exactly the same, but like that's another you know. A verse is a, a section of a song that has a, a melody, and a chorus is a section of a song that has a melody. So the A and B sections are not the same as verse and chorus, but um, that's what that's a similar concept. It just for people that are out there thinking like, what is what is he talking about? Sure, it's, it's the same like form of thinking, like right. taking big sections and giving them names based on how they're repeated and how they're reused. Right. Um. So yeah, I mean, When You Wish Upon a Star is a classic 32-bar form song. You know, you get When You Wish Upon a Star, Makes No Difference Who You Are, Anything Your Heart Desires Will Come to You, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that's the A section, then repeats the same melody on different lyrics, and then the chorus comes in and no one can understand the lyrics because they have really poor diction. <laughs> but it's a different melody. Right. The... Yes, exactly. And then after that, uh, Jiminy Cricket comes back in and sings the opening melody once again. He makes little changes to it to sort of spice it up and make it interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's the classic... 32-bar form yeah. song. Well, is there anything else you want to say on When You Wish Upon a Star? Like, that's of particular note? Um, yeah, I mean, there's... It's an important song because it became the theme for the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, and, well, and I do think the way... The way the song is framed in the movie is really interesting because it's framed as something that is outside of the story and then you get this the person who sings it or the the cricket who sings it jiminy mm -hmm. um he sings it and then he immediately breaks the fourth wall looks directly at the audience and says oh wasn't that pretty i bet mm -hmm. you don't believe a song like that yeah um and that's that's pretty exciting for you know a animated character to be talking directly to the audience and sort of acknowledging that he's in a movie. He's both within the movie and he's the narrator. Uh, so that's interesting. And then he's the one who, who then goes on and primarily uh, sings at least one more song, um, give a little whistle. And then mm -hmm. that's another song that we, we thought seemed very uh, American-y of that time, Tin Pan Alley. All of these songs from Pinocchio and all of the Disney films were sold as sheet music. And in fact, Pinocchio, I believe, was the first Disney film where they actually created songs that were never intended to be in the film, but were intended to be just more merchandise mm -hmm. um, for the film. And that we call these um, exploitation songs. Yeah. And every character gets one. So there's a Pinocchio song, and there's... A Jiminy Cricket song that is not about it's not when you wish upon a star, it's not give a little whistle. Um and there's a Geppetto song. And there is a Monstro song. There's a song what? about Monstro the Whale. Uh who sings that song? Is it just a chorus or it there's no who sings it. It's literally just sheet music. Oh, okay. You you buy it and it's part of the merchandise gotcha. and you can sing it yourself. Is it but is it like whose perspective? Is it like Monster's perspective, like I'm a whale, or is it like <laughs> monstro? No, he's a whale. No, it's it's <laughs> um, it's sort of a like you know omniscient third party mm -hmm. narrator. <laughs> I'll have to we'll have to track those down. Maybe if you um, if you'd like to come back on the podcast, you can you can do a little concert where you sing all of the sheet music for us. Um, okay. uh, I don't think anyone wants to hear me sing. Well, maybe we'll have I someone else do it. it. It could be a little a live. Live Wish Upon a Star concert, uh, singing songs you don't want to hear. Um, yeah. <laughs> ch ch check back for that at some point. So we've talked a little bit about the, the general styles. I'm going to, um, we did this with Snow White, but before we wrap up Pinocchio, I, I do want to kind of get your little, uh, your quick opinions about each of the songs. Um, your sort of yay or nay or, or uh, whatever you, you might say. Um, just for a little bit of context for you, um, Amanda and I really liked uh, When You Wish Upon a Star. I really like um, I Got No Strings. Amanda doesn't like that one so much. Um, she actually, I think, liked Little Woodenhead, maybe second best. I, but, um, so yeah, that, that was our general thoughts. We'll start with When You Wish Upon a Star. Um, 
I assume you have to say yes to that one. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to beat that, and it's mm-hmm. it's sort of on a level of its own. Mm-hmm. And it's it's so beautiful. Like, it's such a well-written song. Oh, sorry, and sorry to interrupt, but something important to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know about the movie that is sort of the link between Snow White and Pinocchio from outside the studio? Ooh, uh, do I know about that? Uh, no, the answer is no, I don't. Um, so you do because it's the Wizard of Oz. Uh, okay, um, yeah. So obviously, you know, different studio, it's MGM. Mm-hmm. But it was in many ways made to uh, recapture the success of Snow White because, oh, let's do a fantasy musical mm-hmm. with lots of color um, and, you know, little people singing. Great. Um, but then in terms of Pinocchio... Um, when You Wish Upon a Star won the 1940, I guess, 41, technically, uh, yeah, Oscar, Oscar yeah. for Best Song. And the song that won the year before it was Over the Rainbow. Um, yet another classic AABA form song. Um, and the songs are have a lot in common uh, besides just their form. They're both about, you know, to wish is to receive you know if you want something badly enough and your character is good and pure you will get it uh so i see a lot of uh over the rainbow Mm -hmm. in when you wish upon a star and i mean i will go on record a million times saying over the rainbow is the best song ever written in history period wow well you're not gonna like my opinion on uh uh that's what makes the world go round from Sword in the Stone, because that's that's the cream of the crop in my book. You know, that that's a good one, and yeah. a, an unusual choice yes. to be one's favorite song, yeah. but one that I respect very much. Yeah. No, it's, this is a bit I'm doing. Uh, for, for those who have been listening, they, they know. They know already. I'm not even going to explain okay. it. Um, okay. So then, uh, uh, the next song after When You Wish Upon a Star was... What was it? It was the stupid Geppetto. Little one. Wooden Head. Yes, Little Wooden Head, which <laughs> is, in a sense, it's the theme of the movie. It is, um, it's the first, it's played in the overture. Um, it's also played, as Amanda noted, um, while the, uh, you are in line at the Pinocchio ride at Disneyland. So, what are your thoughts on Little Wooden Head? You know, I like it. I like that it gets this sort of old-school Bavarian flavor. Um, and that is a leitmotif that gets reused in a lot of really interesting ways mm-hmm. throughout the movie. And, it, it, you know, the song he sings is in 4-4, four, four, but you hear it as a waltz. Yeah. Uh, and you, you hear it in a lot of different um, permutations. Mm-hmm. It's short and inoffensive. The next one is then Give a Little Whistle, which uh, also in the, the AAB... A style, I believe, but then you said there's a little a little dance break. Um, do you, what are your thoughts on that one? Do you like it? Uh, it's not my jam. Mm. Uh, it it to me, it's very much the look. I'm a contemporary American character. Look mm. at me, Charleston. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then it, there's there's two more songs, right? Oh, hi, diddle dee dee. Yep. Um, which is a little bit of a maybe an outlier. It's, it's a march song. Um, you have different characters singing. You have minor characters singing. It's potentially a villain song. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what what do you think about that one? Yeah, it's it's interesting in the context of a villain song. Uh, you know, Honest John is not, I would say, the primary villain. Yeah. Um, I think the lyrics are very clever. I think that's what I like best yeah. about that yeah. song. Yeah. That is something we talked about. Um, and then the last one is I've Got No Strings, which I really liked. And Amanda um, was a little bit down on it, kind of to my surprise. Um, where do you fall on that one? I am fascinated by that number, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, the way it uses exoticism, I mm-hmm. think is really, really interesting. Disney mm-hmm. develops a complicated relationship with exoticism. Um, you know, I'd say most yeah. obviously in films like Mulan and Aladdin, um, but also these little, you know, what I'm calling um, a pageant of nations, where you just get like a little tiny snippet of exotic markers, 
Yeah, I like that one. I think that it is, uh, well, I, one, one thing I said is that the song has a true beginning, middle, and end, unlike a lot of the songs that we see so far, mm. that it's like sort of telling a story of uh, you know, Pinocchio's attempt to make it into showbiz and how he falls and then he gets back up and he ends up dancing. Yeah, uh, I could do a little less Pinocchio singing. Um mm. The the actor who played Pinocchio was a child actor named Dickie Jones. Oh, yeah. And he just very much has this, like, 40s child actor voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess yeah. You, yeah, you fall somewhere between Amanda and myself, then, on that song. I'd say as a scholar, yeah. I am very, I'm very interested in it as a, a human with ears. <laughs> gotcha. It's, it, yeah. Um, okay, well then with Fantasia, which is the next one, we talked about how this was a concert feature, right? That was the, the idea that Disney had. So it's like a concert, but then it's still a Disney yeah. movie with, with animation. Um, do you have any particular thoughts about why this hybrid, why they wanted to do it, why it made sense? In um, a lot of ways, Fantasia is sort of like just a bunch of silly symphonies, which as we remember are just really invested in exploring the, like, comedic potential, but also the sort of expressive artistic potential of combining sound and music and images Mm -hmm. um, into this, you know, sort of very fun, pretty amalgam. Um, But as other studios started to incorporate sound and then color and all these other things um, into their shorts, Disney work to separate itself um, in large part, not only through like developing new technology and sort of staying ahead of the curve in that way, but also going in a more sort of artistic direction rather than just all ridiculous comedy all the time. Yeah. Like this podcast, we sometimes are in the comedy, but this is, this episode is fine art. Oh yeah. This is the the pinnacle of um, internet radio achievement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not, I'm not biased. Oh, yeah. um, it, it, it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the silly symphonies were, you know, I there was certainly comedy. I you know I would never take that away from them. Uh, but the, there are certain silly symphonies where there's really not all that much comedy. Something a uh, cartoon like um, the Old Mill is a famous one where kind of not that much happens plot-wise, but it's all about, like, oh, my God, look how beautiful this is. Look at the intricate details and the drawings and the beautiful music. That's a Lee Harleen score. Um, I think, you know, some of his finest work, uh, just really beautiful score to that that cartoon. Um, So the idea of using cartoons with music as sort of concert style uh entertainment wasn't new with fantasia Mm. um but fantasia in a lot of ways is the sort of pinnacle of that project um i mean we are all really now you know familiar with fantasia we've seen it so many times i think it's important to remember how experimental it was and kind of still is I mean, yeah. can you think of another film that operates in the same way and don't say Fantasia 2000? <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, it's kind of weird to say this, but Fantasia is kind of like an art house film. Yeah. Like, it's so experimental and so different. And especially in, you know, the first sequence, the Takata and Fugue, is, you know, it's nonlinear. There's no figures, really. You know, we can sort of recognize oh, that kind of looks like a shooting star. Yeah. Oh, that kind of looks like a big, you know, rock or something. Or clouds, um, yeah. Yeah, clouds, totally. Um, but it's it's just very abstract, and that's mm. so unusual for Disney. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting that Walt thought that this was going to be, um, this is what he wanted to be his follow-up. Like, this, this seems like something that, that um, you either get from, someone who is just a total indie movie producer or someone who has really established themselves and is, um, you know, has a long career behind them and wants to do something out of the box. This is, I mean, not that Disney wasn't successful. He was, he was, you know, he was 
these are cartoons, like you said, the highest grossing, but this was his third feature. This is um, relatively, he was a relatively young man at this time. Um, it's interesting that he decided to, to make this his passion project at this time. Yeah, and well, I should say also a lot of the sort of creative energy behind Fantasia also goes to Leopold Stokowski, who's right. the conductor mm-hmm. in the film. And they, I don't know if you went into this in your previous episode, so forgive me if I'm repeating. Um, this whole project started out as an idea for a silly symphony where Stokowski, I don't know if Stokowski approached Disney or the other way around, mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, one of them said, hey, can we do a collaboration where we do The Sorcerer's Apprentice as a silly symphony, just as a sort of standalone short? Uh, But then as they started working on it and getting more and more into it, they realized, wow, this has a lot of potential. What would it be like if we expanded this into an entire feature? Um, And The Sorcerer's Apprentice was also intended to bring back the popularity of Mickey Mouse because... With the features especially, but also with the the shorts that had been going on at this time, like Goofy and especially Donald Duck were becoming much more popular characters than Mickey Mouse. So they wanted to feature him and give him this like really fun, exciting mm-hmm. uh, role um, in The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Um, but so the music that appears in the film, pretty much all of it was suggested by Stokowski or by uh, Deems Taylor, who's the announcer. Good old, good old Deems. We we, uh, we talked about a bit, a bit about Deems. So, with each of the pieces that were chosen for uh, for the inclusion in Fantasia, um, Amanda and I talked about uh, these sort of what ultimately happened when they were on screen. But I think it would be interesting to get your insight because these are not pieces that were uh, or works that were written. For the movie, they they had been performed. They were famous already. Uh, they were known. So I'm, I'm interested, sort of, what baggage they were bringing to the screen. Um, that someone who knew classical music at the time would think. Yeah. So um, you know, as we mentioned, these works were suggested by uh, Sikowski and Dean Taylor, like people who like really knew how to program a concert. They were, you know, deeply, deeply ingrained into the sort of classical music world. Um, So I actually think the variety we get is sort of exciting. We get the, you know, these, you know, quote unquote, great masters. We get Bach and we get uh, Tchaikovsky and we get Beethoven. But then we also get Ponchielli and we get Dukas. Uh, you know, not as famous, you know, I would say, especially today, but even then, most famous for the pieces that are in this mm-hmm. film. Um, and we also get a good variety of nationalities. So we get, you know, Bach and Beethoven and Schubert are all Germans. Uh, Bach was earlier than them. Bach died in 1750. And then uh, Schubert and uh, Beethoven were, you know, late 18th century into the 19th century. But then we also get um, Dukas is French. Mussorgsky and Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky are all Russian. And Ponchielli is Italian. So we actually get a good amount of variety. Um, There is a lot of ballet Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, of course, you know, the Nutcracker Suite is mm-hmm. uh, the Rite of Spring is a ballet. Interesting. The Dance of the Hours is a ballet from an opera. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's it comes at the end of the third act of an opera called La Gioconda, which is actually a really sad, devastating opera. Um, but it has this very famous, like, lighthearted ballet. And actually what's devastating about it is the ballet is in the opera performed uh, in front of all these like noble men to um, entertain them while we know that the heroine is being tortured in another oh, room. Wow. What's going on. It's terrible. I'm never going to think of Hello Mada, Hello Fada in the same way again. Oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to have brought this to your attention. Yeah. And uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice is not a ballet, but Paul Dukas is very known as a ballet composer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a lot of sort of balletic type Mm -hmm. material in there. 
do you think that that is that, that sort of music was picked because it lent itself towards um, the fact that it was written for dance made it lend itself towards um, animation, or do you think it was just kind of that's just how it worked out? I do. Um, yeah, it, you know, it it was written to be choreographed right. to. And so this is just sort of a different version of choreography. Mm-hmm. And of course, in the dance of the hours, it's like more literal choreography. And it's this whole like, right. like parody of right. highbrow ballet. Yeah. Um, but also Disney, like Walt Disney loved ballet. And we see it here, of course, but we see it a lot in the silly symphonies as well. There's a lot of sort of classical formations and there's a lot of, you know, pirouettes and, um, you know, I, I don't know any other ballet terms besides pirouettes. <laughs> Jumps. Um, but there's, yeah, yeah, Ron de Jam, how about that? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I absolutely think that they lean towards dance music uh, for that reason. And they also lean towards um, uh, narrative music. Uh, it's called pro- program music, a piece that tells a story. I think Deems Taylor made this distinction when he begins the movie, but um, there's music that's written for a particular story. There's music that is completely abstract that is just to be enjoyed as itself and there's there's something in between mm-hmm. yeah yeah um and actually i think that's a real like the way that he introduces that is a really good way to introduce most people to classical western art music mm-hmm. um it you know i'll be the first to admit it can be difficult to sit through a full orchestral concert uh without any background knowledge without knowing you know what should you listen to you know how can you get pleasure out of this and i think knowing that okay sometimes there's going to be a story sometimes it's about these cool like colors and just variety um, i think that's a really great way to introduce people Mm. um to symphonic repertory so then in that sense do you think that um that Fantasia has done a good job at introducing people of this last however many years it's been to classical music. Is is this is this uh, has this been good for classical music? Has this been good for music? This question has been hotly debated since the premiere of Fantasia. Some people think, "Oh my God, it's this amazing introduction." You know, classical music was dying, and now here we are with this, you know, great introduction. And I think there's definitely something to be said for that. Like, as you said, you know, you can't hear the Sorcerer's Apprentice without thinking of Disney. Um, And especially for a piece like uh, The Rite of Spring, which is, uh, there's a lot of dissonance, and it can be a little impenetrable. Um, Having some sense of... Okay, well, if I listen to this and imagine the brutality of dinosaurs, then at least I'm getting something more out of it than, oh, God, this Mm -hmm. is so loud. You know, Um, however, there are some, uh, shall we say, purists who think, how dare Disney put these preconceived images to these masterpieces? And this is a very um, pretentious uh, (laughs) point of view, but it is one that has been taken up time and again. Uh, You know, a lot of the critics from the premiere uh, of this film thought, this is terrible. This is literally doing violence to Beethoven. So so you're saying that that Beethoven did not intend his music to be a strange uh, precursor to the movie Hercules that would come out in 1997? (laughs) specifically (laughs) yes i will say the pastoral symphony so beethoven wrote nine full symphonies there's a sort of tenth one that's incomplete but gets performed sometimes but essentially nine symphonies and these are counted among you know the greatest compositions ever you know some of these you know the most important documents of western civilization period uh the pastoral symphony number six is the only one that has specific uh, narrative programmatic elements that Beethoven himself indicated Mm -hmm. in the score. So the choice of that symphony, as opposed to any of the other Beethoven symphonies for this film, I think was very deliberate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now the, Beethoven's score does not say, oh, this is about centaurs and it's about <laughs> classical mythology. But he said it's it's about 
nature and it's about being in the woods and these bucolic scenes and oh look here's the like peasant dance and isn't it great um and the there's a storm in it which disney turns into a storm that doesn't sound too violent to me it sounds like they're at least adapting to what beethoven himself wanted i mean does it matter what beethoven wanted yes really yes because the dude is dead though disney's dead too He's dead now. They're all dead. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't dead when <laughs> he wasn't dead when they made the movie. Yes, that, that, um, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think yes, you know, it is important to talk about Beethoven and remember Beethoven, but it's also important not to hold Beethoven up as this monolithic genius who invented music. Mm. Uh, and actually, the same for Walt Disney. Like Walt Disney often gets talked about as like American hero you know, done. Um, and he had his own issues. And it's, I think mm. when you start talking about a historical figure as a capital G, capital Enius, genius, um, you start to remove them from this sort of specificity of history and their actual time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in a way that, I don't want to use the, the phrase again, like, I don't think that does violence to mm. them, but it, it sort of removes them from implication of being anything other than brilliant all the time. So we've talked about a bunch of these um, pieces now that were put into Fantasia. Uh, there's a couple that we haven't gone into as much detail on. For one, the Nutcracker Suite. Um, Particularly, we were taken aback when Deems Taylor says that the the ballet was was not popular. And we... yeah, yeah, I, that little part of the announcement is kind of weird too, and I think it's a little bit wrong. Mm. Um, the Nutcracker was a huge smash as a ballet when it premiered mm. in. Hold on, let me, let me look this date up. Uh, like eighteen ninety, uh, eighteen ninety two. Mm-hmm. Um. And, like, it wasn't... So, today, we think of it as literally every Christmas. Yeah. The Nutcracker, just over and over and over and over. And, yeah, that maybe wasn't in place uh, by the time of Fantasia. But the suite was an extremely popular thing Mm -hmm. to be programmed um, almost immediately after it performed. I will say, and I think what maybe Taylor was a little hinting at, Tchaikovsky hated the (laughs) Nutcracker, he he was embarrassed by it. He he hated the music. Yeah, um, and he he thought it was um, insipid. He thought it was some of the worst work he ever did. And I think he would, if he was alive today, he would feel really weird that it's what most people know him for. Yeah, um, as opposed to he did the eighteen twelve overture, right? That that was him. Well, and a lot of, like, really excellent symphonies, like Beethoven and chamber music as well. Mm -hmm. Also, Swan Lake, another famous ballet. Um, So, Takata and Fugue, we mentioned that it was a, uh, it was Bach, and that it was expressionist in the animation style. What was the piece thought of as that that Uh, time? Well, first of all, uh, it is an orchestration of a piece that uh, Bach composed for solo organ uh and so this is an orchestration that stakowski did mm. meaning he you know he took the organ piece and spread out the parts among the orchestra right bach during his lifetime was not really very famous he was much better known as uh, a keyboardist like an organist um and his sons were actually much more famous as con- uh, composers than he was until the mid 19th century where there is this huge Bach revival uh, that sort of launched him into being the amazing monolithic figure that we think of him today. Mm-hmm. So he was definitely thought of as like the Johann Sebastian Bach in all caps uh, in 1940. And there was actually sort of a, a trend around that time for orchestrating his works to make them even grander and even bigger because the orchestra that appears in Fantasia didn't exist in Bach's time. Like a lot of those instruments, they had been invented, but they weren't in the form that they are now. Right. Right. Um, And that, you know, they couldn't get that sound or anything even Mm -hmm. close to it. Um, And like the tuba didn't exist. Mm -hmm. 
and there's like a ton of tuba in, in that arrangement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then another one is the Rite of Spring, which you you mentioned is a ballet. Um, yeah. So the uh, the Rite of Spring was composed by uh, Igor Stravinsky, who was a Russian composer, but at the time was living in Paris um, and composing for uh, the Ballet Russe, which was a a Russian ballet company that sort of had a residency in Paris. Um, and he had composed uh, in the, you know, the uh, 19-teens, a series of ballets for the Ballet Russe that were really popular. So the Firebird, which shows up in Fantasia 2000. Yeah, yeah. And then um, uh, Petrushka was the other one. But then the Red of Spring, he really leaned into these very modernist, very dissonant uh, sounds mm. and like very experimental. And it famously caused a riot uh, on the night mm. of its premiere in Paris. Yeah, why um, was that? That's something that we came across. Uh, was it because of the, the style of the music? It's a little uh, it's a little bit of everything. It was definitely the music was so dissonant and so crazy for the time. But also the um, the choreography was very unlike anything that people would have associated with ballet at this time. It was hip hop influenced. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was so far ahead of its time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So instead of having these uh, sort of graceful long lines in the body that classical ballet strives for, it was very angular. And instead of sort of Mm. graceful leaps where you land silently, it was literally like pounding stamping on the floor. Mm. Uh, And it was just so uh, brutalist. I guess we could say um, that it really riled the audiences uh, in 1913. Yeah. Um, and so I think by going in a direction of like uh, dinosaurs fighting each other, there's a little, there's overlap in the sort of brutalist. Uh, the yeah. original ballet is about uh, cavemen basically. And one mm-hmm. of them gets sacrificed. And so we're going even farther back in history to the dinosaurs, but it's still this like, you know, brutal, uh, you know, survival of the fittest landscape. And I will say at at the time, um, the way that Disney represented dinosaur behavior and movement was based on like the most cutting edge paleontology research uh, uh, that has since been disproven in a lot of ways. Uh, Yeah. I think T-Rex's arms are a little big, and he's a little too upright. Um, thank you for all that insight. I do want to ask, before we, we end, just what is your thought on Fantasia, your personal opinion? Do you feel, um, as someone who knows about music and knows about Disney, um, how do you personally feel that it fits into all of this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great way to introduce people to um, symphonic music. Uh, and I have, you know, a very deep respect and love for uh, a lot of this repertory. I'm a, I play in orchestras and it's one of my favorite things. Um, and I think it's important to show people like, no, this is not the only way to listen to this. But it is a great way, especially for children and for people who just really don't have that much exposure uh, to classical music as saying like, look, you know, here's a way to make this exciting. Yeah. Can I quickly give my favorite fun fact about Fantasia, though? So when Fantasia first came out, for a variety of reasons, uh, did not perform well, uh, financially, Mm. critically, any of that. And over the years, they re-released it, which, you know, Disney is constantly doing with their films. They're re-releasing it to theaters. Um, And Fantasia, it was, I don't know, it's like fifth or sixth re-release, um, in the 60s, uh, and it was advertised with posters that used this very trippy psychedelic art uh, to advertise <laughs> the film. It wasn't until then that the film made back its original investment because it was basically saying, oh. hey, you can take psychedelic drugs and go to this movie and it'll be great. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you, you, I don't know if... Uh... If uh, that was what what Walt had in mind when he when he first saw the concert feature, but um, hey, whatever whatever uh, puts money in the bank, I guess. I don't want to speculate about what uh, Disney may or may not have been dropping onto his tongue at the time. <laughs> Speaking of trying to make back your money, uh, I think that's what leads us to 
Dumbo, because that's our next movie, and uh, given that this did not perform quite so well, and Pinocchio didn't perform as well as Snow White did, Disney was trying to make some money. Is that... That's that's a fair a fair assessment of Dumbo. Is that correct? Um, uh, you know, I didn't know that Disney was interested in money. <laughs> uh, no, that that's absolutely right. Um, in addition to the films being sort of financial flops, the you know World War II was raging overseas, so they lost a lot of their overseas yeah. market as well. Oh, okay. And thank you again for joining us, Dan, and giving us all of your expertise and letting us just take it all. Uh, you don't have it anymore because now the world has it. Uh, tricked again. And we'll have you back another time on Great. Wish Upon a, a Song. The Disney Song by Song. Bye.